Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Cold rain beats down my head like a thousand sniper bullets. My city is whinging in pain. Bang, bang, bang. Ah! Get the man off of me! Crime is the baby. And I am the doctor telling my city, push, push, push. I'm a pool shark over here. I'm an actual shark that plays pool. Kind of a funny... I'm in the wrong comic book. Half a block away, an old man dies trying to fight a pimp. The city is nothing but kindly old men and pimps. But she is mine, and I am her protector. I'm the yellow bastard. <laughs> That's me. Teedly two. A teedly tee. I have to admit, I kind of fell off the rails after the 90s. It's Frank Miller. Yeah. Right? He deserves electric guitar. Sexy ninjas. Yes. Burly men. Lots of prostitutes. Dark situations. Everything is dark. Things are a problem. Frank Miller, here we go. Let's do this. Welcome to the Wizard of the Bruiser. Hut. I just, wow. uh, yeah, I did a you're football ja- You're hyped. Yes, I'm super hyped. I got the coffee. You brought peanut M&Ms, just giving everyone sort of an idea of where we're at right now. I am the wizard, Stoneheart Holden McNeely. And I am the bruiser, Featherheart Jake Young. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Jake, Frank Miller, I had, a, I had a loads of fun mm-hmm. researching this one this week. Uh, Frank Miller is, you know, one of the heavy hitters in American comics. Uh, it's We might end up repeating ourselves a lot from the Alan Moore episode because it, he was one of these guys that came at the pivotal point where the stale and old way of doing comics, that like the shackles that the comics code kind of put on the American superhero industry and like finally broke the chains and kind of expanded the minds of what a superhero story can be. And of course, some more crossover action for you gave us what we would come to know as the legendary, probably arguably greatest superhero of all time, Spawn. (laughs) (laughs) Ushered in the age of Spawn, as I call it. The Spawn-den age, as I call it. There was the Silver Age, the Golden Age, and then the Spawn-den age. The more research I did about Frank Miller, the more I realized that like my entire life would be completely different without him because without his Batman we wouldn't have Cable we wouldn't have Rob Liefeld we wouldn't have the dark age of comics I would have never been like I would have never gone into superheroes because it would have still been lame pajama men yeah uh he is a focal point in bringing Japanese culture to western audiences yeah manga he he brought the manga he invented the Ninja Turtles yeah kinda it's like without Frank Miller, the Ninja Turtles wouldn't exist. Like, he is this focal point, and it's all contained in this just, like, very skinny, like, New England kid 
that yeah. made his way to New York City at age 21 because uh, he was the fifth of seven kids, yes. the son of a carpenter. Yes. Uh, and he made it to New York City in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, which, again, if you uh, just want to do a quick Google search, was a nightmare zone. <laughs> <laughs> According to the documentary The Warriors, mm, roving yes. baseball games. Can you Dig it. <laughs> Pimps and chuds, as far as the eye can see. <laughs> um, but uh, so he, so just a straight-laced, smart guy, kind of a nerd. He loved comic books and was drawn to the industry, and New York is where that industry was. When he was 16 years old, too, he wrote a letter to Marvel. And I have it right here. I'll, I'll read out loud. So it really came from a very early age. He said, uh, Dear Mar, it was this was uh, in published in the Cat number three mm. in 1973. He says, Dear Marvel, wonderful at last, a woman character with character. I, for one, am sick of the helpless female types which have cluttered up comics for so long. While I do think they are necessary and nice to look at, they don't they don't have to be the only kind. The writing is good, the art is excellent. Keep it up, and I, and I think that's a wonderful little prelude to some of the characters he would later come to be known for such as Electro which we'll get to in a little bit oh yeah absolutely um so he is like there's one thing you can say about Frank Miller despite any of the controversies that he later engendered to himself it's that he is a man who truly loves comic books their unique attributes and their unique history and so uh he moves to New York uh, I don't know if you know this, but amateur comic book artist, not a very lucrative profession. No. So he was living in the dumps of the dumps in New York's lowest point. And uh, he describes his first uh, like interview with uh, Joe Orlando, a editor at DC Comics. He talks about this in an interview uh, with, at the Joe Kubert School. He says literally he didn't have a proper portfolio. He had individual pages tied together with twine because he didn't like understand how pro like art supplies worked. This was his first meeting, and like he was living in what's like j- just a hovel of an apartment. Yes, he hollowed out rats to use them <laughs> as shoes, which was very disturbing for the uh, editors that he would pitch his. his and he uh, describes Joe Orlando, who is this like uh, legendary old timey comics guy, like EC Comics, old Mad Magazine kind of guy, so kindly and like t- and like with like you know just warmth in his heart, telling him that he is talentless and will never succeed in comics. <laughs> And as he's looking down at his portfolio, kind of like realizing the huge step he's taken and what a mistake it might have been, a uh, cockroach crawls out of his out of his portfolio, uh-huh. or as he called it, a water bug, which is how you know it's like one of those big fuckers. Yeah, giant ones. Um, they can fly in Florida. <laughs> But it's a nightmare. He wasn't deterred, and he actually sought out the uh, tutelage and guidance of Neil Adams, who is another yes. big comics uh, guy, another revolutionary figure. He worked on Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, all in the Silver Age. Uh, uh, big, big deal. And and he was able to get some lessons from him. Mm-hmm. He was able to get some sort of informal mentoring from this great man. And it, uh, it got him a recommendation at Webster Publishing's Gold Key Comics imprint, which ran a Twilight Zone comic series for 92 issues from 1962 to 1982. That's right. I do my research. Get the fuck off my back. <laughs> oh, but it's so comfy and lumpy up here. <laughs> He's Let cre- me stay. He's credited on, on one uh, Weird War Tales, number 64, in a story called Deliver Me from D-Day. He worked on little stories like t- for the Twilight Zone, like Endless Cloud and Royal Feast. <laughs> 
But it was a, a gig he did for the spectacular Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. Yes. That uh, involved Daredevil that finally got him uh, his big break, which was on the bi-monthly. Or wait, which one's the bad one? Bi-monthly or bi-weekly? Bi-monthly. Bi- yes, oh, bi-monthly. Was, so bi-monthly is basically like. It should have been we- like uh, it, it was d- downgraded to bi-monthly, which is twice a month. Right. As opposed to a weekly uh, situation. Okay. I believe. Now, bi-weekly is every two weeks. Man. The I'm point having is a hard. Bi- no, bi- Jake. Monthly- we have to figure this out. Yeah. Bi-monthly is every two. Or bi-monthly is every two months. Bi-weekly is every two weeks. Okay. Basically, yeah. Daredevil. Refer to your Biomon Sci-Fi Con for more. Okay, Bi- Ooh, thank you, thank you. Good <laughs> ref. Uh, Daredevil was on its last legs. And- I recently came out as bi-monthly. Oh, um, yes, and that was a big step. for So me. you're attracted to women and months. Months of the year. I've been kind of gunning for March. We'll see what happens. Uh, but definitely September. I've been banging since '08. Nice. I think. Yeah, yeah. Shitty month to fuck. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Always wants to try to feed you hamburgers after. Jake, I'm sorry. I've derailed this entire show. I never apologize for talking about fucking the month of September <laughs> while it force feeds you hamburgers. You you hear me holding? All right, damn it. Uh, this run of Daredevil is what many people consider like one of the most groundbreaking runs in comic book history. Now, have you read it? Uh, I've only seen bits and pieces, uh, honestly. Uh, the most I actually read only came later when uh, I picked up the uh, the graphic novel package for his like return to glory, uh-huh. which mm-hmm. is will come later. But yes, this this series kind of it had a harder edge. They get instead of like they kind of you know Matt Murdock is not a power fantasy for the most part. His abilities are he's not very blind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, Frank Miller's art style was very dynamic and had a lot of, like, motion and action and weight to it. And Uh, he just brought in those the samurai uh, shogun uh, kung fu film influences mm -hmm. into Daredevil, which was completely new at the time. Um, And 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 along with that came the manga influences that he had when he was younger. He was reading Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, before they were translated. Yeah. So he just, it was like his favorite thing, and he just uh, only went by the art to tell the story, which, again, I think is a strong indicator of the kind of work he would go on to do. And I do feel like you could read a Sin City and really know exactly what was going on without any text. Yeah, uh, uh, the, yeah the fight choreography, you know, Daredevil was a street-level rumbler kind of character, and the fight scenes were legendary, uh, he gave each character kind of a, a, a very, like, it's not operatic, but everyone had this epic inner monologue. Everyone from the reporter Ben Urich to uh, the Kingpin, who was like, you know, he was like a classic mob boss kind of guy, but they kind of brought in that 80s, like, conglomerate corporation, evil Wall Street kind of figure. Uh, they brought in Electra, who is not like the damsel in distress, but a female antihero that you know is like sexy and dangerous, and is kind of moves independently from Matt Murdock, even though 
when push comes to shove, like you got Mick out a little. He created the character, correct? Electra, yeah. Yes, right. So uh, and also, it was- I fucking it wasn't until like today that I realized Electra, Electra complex, daddy issues. Fucking, of course, I'm an idiot. There you yeah. go. I mean, I thought it's like yeah, Greek ninja. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Same with Oedipus boy. I couldn't <laughs> believe I couldn't figure that. out. I mean, it was way more spelled out. They you know? didn't. He didn't invent Oedipus boy until Dark Knight uh, Part Three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dark Knight Three. Dark Knight gets nasty with. <laughs> <laughs> which people really did not like. I mean, the cover by Andy Kubert is great, but other than that, it's, it's... Ups- yeah, an upside down Batman. I mean, what even is that, right? I mean, it's just stupid. It's just Batman walking on his hands. But uh, it elevated. The point is, is that there's a lot of classic stories. The villains are shown uh, sympathetically. Uh, I, the character of the gladiator is, uh, you know, this like dumb Greek themed uh, like bruiser character that you know actually gets help with a social worker and like reforms and there's street level uh, toughs like Turk that keep showing up like it's it's there's this it's this very organic world and it you know instead of just being like pow kablooey uh, you know that Frank Miller style narration where it's like my fist explodes in his side I feel the third rib ex- like burst beneath my knuckle <laughs> which is like fucking way different than like I like Here's a little chin music ne'er do well. <laughs> and uh, uh, one more thing about Electra that I found to be interesting. He jokingly said in an interview that he ripped off uh, Will Eisner's The Spirit for the story. There's a story called Sand Seraph about one of the spirit's first loves who went on to become a jewel thief. Now, do you know a lot about the spirit? Of course, we'll, we'll hear more about the spirit later in this episode. Um, I guess it was just like an old timey detective novel. Uh, I mean, uh, cartoon strip, duh, yeah, not... Uh, yeah, okay, so Will Eisner is a very talented uh, cartoonist and, like, kind is of... Is he the namesake for the Eisner Award? Yes. Okay, great. Um, you know, Jewish immigrant, uh, and kind of, he predates, like, Marvel DC comic books and was actually kind of the progenitor of it because uh, the newspaper strips would run these big color Sunday supplementals. Yes, yeah. And so... The Spirit was kind of the first full-color, masked ad- adventurer, long-form story that a lot of people that ended up working at comics like were exposed to. So he got to write the rules and kind of got to explore like the this new frontier of storytelling that hadn't been done before. And it was very noiry, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you I have think, trench coats and, I think and you games and... Directly trace, like, th- 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 Sin City, Dark... Uh, Dark Knight Returns, all of these things, even this Daredevil stuff, back to Lone Wolf and Cub and The Spirit. Probably like the the those two, mm-hmm. com- if you could imagine that manga and that comic book having sexual intercourse with each other, and then like a weird goo comes out of it, and that would be the sort of the work of Frank Miller. I en- like I envy Frank Miller for getting his hands on those mangas, like because because uh, he loved comic books. I love comic books. I there, what's it, Marcus you. Super producer Marcus Parks in the studio, as always. Hello. Uh, imagine if, like, all of a sudden someone handed you a, a cassette tape and it had, like, a new kind of punk music. Ah. <laughs> like, that broke all the established rules that you had learned. And then, like, but it was somehow even better than everything you had heard before it. Uh, so, Gogo Bordello. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's but like that's the thing is like he it's a whole new bag of tricks it's a, it's a completely separate tradition that 
you know, you know, it's two different. It's literally an ocean apart. These two comic book industries, and so working in American comics, he now had these like tricks and techniques and. And even just like panel arrangements that no one else was using. Yeah, definitely the panel- ninjas. Yes, and ninjas. Yeah, ninjas. And the no panel one else arrangements had ninjas for sure. Um, as I'm dipping back into, can I say manga? I want to say manga, but I thought I was supposed to say manga. To not sound like an idiot. Oh, uh, I have no fear about sounding. I love Japanimation. My favorite mangas. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll That's say like, manga. That's what I want to say, but I was just like, oh, I think everybody pronounces it manga, manga. which is just a hold pain it, in the hold ass it. To I say. want you to close your manga. In, close your close your eyes and in your mind's eye, imagine the exact person that would actually take the time to be like, um, actually, it's pronounced manga. Like, look at him. Do you care what he thinks? <laughs> it's me as a woman. That was the most upsetting part about what just happened. So this revitalizes Daredevil and kind of changes comic books a little bit. This this whole situation, right? I mean, uh, and and uh, he eventually kills off Elektra uh, in episode uh, an issue rather number one eighty one, and finishes the whole thing in uh, issue one ninety one in nineteen eighty three, and goes on to some other shit. He's he literally took the garbage heap of Marvel comics and turned it into the number one selling book. He then uh, gets snapped up by DC, and they let him go nuts on his own creator-owned book, which at the time was a very novel thing. Like the you know this is this is the beginning of the artist and writer as celebrity kind of thing, and that was Ronin. Yes, which Ronin. I never got a hold of, but basically it was. Just, I want to read it now. It that just, I've done this research. I'm dying to read it. Now. More samurai. More ninjas. More like alt future stuff. He basically just says it was him cutting loose with all the cool techniques that he was seeing in uh, in Japanese comics and in European comics, like uh, the work of Mobius is, is you know that kind yes. of like freaky sensual uh, European comic vibe. And Mobius will come up actually later in this episode. Um, uh, oh, just gonna say, uh, just give a kind of a, a little roundabout of what what Ronin is all about. Um, you're gonna hear this phrase multiple times in this episode in a dystopian near future. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's my least favorite kind of near future. <laughs> you're gonna hear that so many times this episode. Uh, a Ronin is inca- reincarnated. Now, a Ronin is a samurai without a lord or master. Um, and these were uh, termed for these types of people. This is during the feudal period, which is 1185 to 1868 in Japan. Um, it, it was kind of an interesting thing. A ronin became masterless through uh, the death of all of his, uh, the death of his master or the loss of his master's favor. And ronin actually translates to wave man, which is essentially a person that is socially adrift. Japanese, man. They crazy! Oh, we bowled over this and I feel dumb, but, uh, also for Marvel, he did uh, the first four issues of the Wolverine miniseries with oh, Chris yeah. Claremont, which not only made Wolverine way cooler than he already was and kind of established him as his own like powerhouse and like cultural icon, but he introduced even more crazy Japanese stuff in that story. Yeah, my brother has number two, all mm. packaged up in pristine condition. Just the uh, that iconic image of Wolverine popping the claws and like doing that like come here finger, like just with a shitty grin on his face. Fuck uh, yeah, man. It's also where they introduced Wolverine's uh, uh, clever disguise, Patches. <laughs> Which That's is, when he's got an 
eye patch. This is a guy an eye patch, which is different than Batman's cool disguise, matches. <laughs> which is when Batman is just chewing on a match. <laughs> That's like 1983 to 84. Yeah. But it's 1985-86 is when uh, it's the late 80s. Frank Miller goes Super Saiyan. He goes fucking Super Saiyan. <laughs> He, uh, he he creates a spirit bomb called Dark Knight Returns. Um, it's God, it's heavil- so heavily inspired by uh, the Dirty Harry film Sudden Impact, which I should go back and watch, in which Dirty Harry comes out of retirement. Mm-hmm. And Miller's own aging was an inspiration as well. He was 29 at the time, which makes me furious. No, uh, no, he turned 30, and Batman is perpetually 29. Yes, all of a sudden I realized I was about to turn 29 years old, oh, Batman, wait, what? Batman's age. Okay, never mind. Then I realized I was one year you're wrong jake i'm wrong then i realized i was i'm too much i have too much coffee in me then i realized i was one year away from turning older than batman the more this year went on the more it bothered me you're kind of right jake then i might be that i might be older than him so finally i decided to fix that and make him older than me once and for all so i conceived of a story where batman was at the impossibly old age of 50 Honestly, if there's, if, I, I can't even imagine that someone is listening to this right now that hasn't read Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, it was sort of, okay, so I talked about there were like three different comic books that were handed to me during my like coming back to comics in, mm-hmm. actually four probably, yeah, four, coming back to comics in college. Those comics would be, um, in this order, Dark Knight Returns, The Watchmen, the first trade of... Um, of uh, Jesus God of uh, Dream of uh, Sandman. Sandman, Jeez, Lord, and um, the first trade of Preacher. It was Dark Knight Returns specifically, though, brought me back into comic books, and um, I think it has that power to bring anyone into comic books who've been away, who have never experienced them on that level. Mm-hmm. The Silver Age Batman. <laughs> Batman had always, like, by this time, Batman was darker. Like, he wasn't, you know, just wearing rainbow suits. And, and you had your Neil Adams before yeah. this, yeah, who kind of darkened it up, gave him the gray suit. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but there wasn't a reason for an average person to pick up a just normal issue of Batman. This was a special prestige format in, you know, instead of, like, staples and four color, this was, you know, square bound. This was an event and you know this was this you know it was it, it was marketed as like this ain't your daddy's batman like this was this was this was a special comics event which you know was rare at the time now everything's a special event um and the art was unlike anything that you had seen the coloring was beautiful with uh 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 Oh shit, Lynn Vart. Who he would he would was he married to her at the time? They were together. His partner at the time. I don't know if they were married. Uh, the the way that it reflected like the modern politics of the eighties. Lynn Varley. Lynn Varley. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way that there was like talking heads and cable news and like the media was part of the story. Uh, the way that, uh, you know, the fear of inner city gangs and, like, the corruption of the youth was manifested through the mutants <laughs> who literally spoke in, like, a digital, un, like, undecipherable slang. The crazy 16-panel pages, mm-hmm. I felt like what was a big difference, just, just there was so much uh, that could happen on a page, and then it would just be, like, one single image on the next. So they played with uh, layout pretty in a pretty cool way. And uh, the presentation of Batman not as, like, a super detective, but as a 
terrifyingly crazy old man. Uh, you know, his broken dialogue, the uh, the way that each each you know each action on the page would usually be punctuated by like muscles burn like a thousand fires stupid old man think you still got the knees of a kid like <laughs> uh, yeah like a real batman like a batman that felt more like a real ass person you know than it than he had in a very long time a real person who was over the hill which made it the stakes way higher in in all of these fights like oh this is a batman that you know they could totally kill off if they wanted to mm-hmm. you know and 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 a lady Robin, oh Cassie, Lady Robin. I loved, I loved the little changes like that, you know. And again, going back to that letter that Frank Miller wrote um, back in the day, just coming up with like a, a cool, strong female uh, comic book character that wasn't just like a hu- like tits with a human attached to it. No, no, that's the, he saves that for Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> um, fucking, there's so and like. There's shit in there that, you know, now fucked up Batman is something you can easily find, but, like, the Joker just, like, cackling as he snaps his own neck through force of will is, like, that'll fucking stick with you, man. You're just like, what the hell? This is fucking amazing. I think uh, one of the most quoted as, like, influential holy shit moments in comic book history is the last issue where Superman and Batman slug it out on... In fucking crime alley, uh, it's it's you know it's it's just cathartic. It's 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 it it breaks past the history of comics up until that point, but also it's like the culmination of the history of comics at that point. Um, that perfect kind of meeting point for before and after, for sure. That comic kind of has it all, right? Yeah, and um, it also introduced kind of this new archetype because you know instead of like slender, acrobatic, like cool justice dad like new batman was built like a truck yeah and he huge, was beefy. he was just a human truck grizzled just covered in cracks like just like a cracked earth he was like the thing the batman uh you know the uh, rob liefeld's cable is literally just old bruce wayne with a robot arm and some shoulder pads like the design is nearly identical uh it's it's you know, it's but with that and Watchmen coming out at basically the same time, it changed everything. And yeah. even with all the like caveats of you know, it, you know, all you know, even with everything being like uh, edgy, uh, cool, uh, darkness, it's still a really good comic. It is still fundamentally a good comic that is worth reading. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. It's just so weird. Yeah, I mean, Frank Miller doesn't get enough credit for just being. Weird, mm-hmm. unsettlingly weird, like the weird gas baby. Mm. Yeah, that kills everyone. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I the forgot weird, about the, the weird flying gas baby. You forget that's how weird it is. You forgot about a weird flying gas baby. <laughs> I was that so... kills a studio audience. <laughs> I was so focused, obviously, on the Nazi machine gun lady with swastikas on her boobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It's it's just a fantastic read. Uh, highly recommend, uh, and everyone should go back and read it again if if you haven't in a while. At the same time, over at Marvel. He was working with David Mazzuccelli on a uh, on his glorious return to Daredevil called yes. uh, Born Again, mm-hmm. which kind of uh, was this. It was this wasn't prestige format. This was just individual issues of Daredevil, but it was a seven part story that reads like a graphic novel. Shows his Catholic upbringing, his fall and rise with uh, Kingpin. So, in classic uh, in classic Frank Miller fashion, it turns out that. Uh, Karen Page, who was once the uh, 
loyal like gal Friday of Matt Murdock, uh, moved to Los Angeles to become an actress, immediately gets hooked on heroin, uh, and is uh, and she sells uh, Matt Murdock's name to a Mexican drug dealer for a single hit of heroin. And uh, it makes its way to the kingpin, who finally has the information he needs, not to get his revenge on Daredevil, but to, like, utterly break him. And it's the the book goes into a lot of the kingpin's own personal thought process on how he wants to like relish in destroying Daredevil. That like he looks at Matt Murdock as like this gleam of uncompromising goodness that he knows in his heart can't be, and he has to crush it. Also, a lot of a lot of the book is just the kingpin, just like you know how the kingpin is uh, this big fat bald guy, but yeah. the clutch is that it's all muscle. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just like lifting weights, and there's like this brilliant shot of like the kingpin uh, planning his next step against Daredevil, but he's like doing it while just fighting a bunch of karate dudes in a red speedo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a I'll, very I love that panel. It comes out of nowhere. It's like <laughs> like that's his like time to put on my red speedo and fight a bunch of karate dudes. <laughs> But uh, the, it's it's maybe my it's like an amazing first issue because again we talk about heroes with real problems and uh, what the kingpin does is he doesn't send an assassin he doesn't like you know break his his legs uh, within one day uh, Matt Murdock finds out that none of his mortgage payments have been reaching the bank the uh, <laughs> the uh, IRS is is auditing him and freezing his assets uh, and then his house blows up in a gas fire. <laughs> So now he's just homeless and oh and false and he gets a subpoena for being falsely accused for trying to bribe a cop. <laughs> so like he loses his house and his job and his money. So now like you know now he's just a fucking schlub in Hell's Kitchen again. Yeah, just uh, starting from the very beginning. I I know there's one panel too. You just flip the page. It just says fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Giant letters. Uh, in the book, uh, Karen Page is just this tweaked out heroin addict who just is constantly being like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so weak. I hate myself for being a woman." <laughs> uh, and there's also a character named Glory who is uh, like the who was Matt Murdock's like Irish girlfriend. You can tell she's Irish because in almost every panel she's like core this is just like belfast during the troubles <laughs> you know where i'm from where there's violence <laughs> oh it's cold outside so cold outside i might come down with the consumption <laughs> uh, i need her but I it's okay because she hooks up with foggy nelson it's about time the chubby kid, the chubby <laughs> one got a hot irish girlfriend their kid foggy <laughs> old-timey people that is true old-timey people uh, this is also a really good book. It's not as like landmark as uh, as Dark Knight Returns. It doesn't have that same weird energy. It's just kind of like good meat and potatoes storytelling, uh, but still on fire. Frank Speaking Miller, of origin still stories, still on fire. I think if if I think what you're leading up to is what you're leading up to. Yes, Batman Year One, right? Yes. Yeah. So good. So it's the definitive Batman origin story. Yep. It's bat. You know, Batman Begins is like. They were like, why would we even bother telling a story different than this? Yep, one of DC's best-selling books of all time. Shows Batman's early crime-fighting career as well as his uh, budding partnership with James Gordon. Uh, I, I, like the, I like the Commissioner Gordon segments like more than the Batman segments. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's just like, it's such a believable... Just every single time you were just trying to do the right thing and every every force on earth is being like, oh, come on, man. Fuck you. <laughs> like, it's such a relatable character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mazzuccelli is a 
brilliant artist. Uh, you know, he doesn't have like the flair that Miller has, but he just has so much solid understanding of how the page works. Mm. Um, what, what else did Mazzuccelli work on? Do, do you know? Uh, he worked on the uh, Daredevil story okay. that we just talked about. Uh, he has uh, gra- he's done a lot of graphic novels. One of my favorite is uh, one called Asterios Polyp, which is oh my god, I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's him. That is him. Holy fuck, I love Asterios Polyp. It's, Have you ever read that, Marcus? Uh. Oh, everybody should re- le- read that. It's so good. I've never even heard it. of it. Yeah, it's amazing. It, that's like has the crazy layouts. Yeah, it's it's. And I mean, it's like a love ostens- story, right? Ostensibly, about an old man. it's a, a love story about an like uh, architecture professor, but really, it's just Mazzuccelli just like fucking pumping steroids directly into his neck and showing the world this is the fucking this is what you can do with a page and a pen. Oh, it's unbelievable. Are you looking at like little? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's it's. Uh, it's amazing, and really I loved cool the. Sto- I remember loving the story. Yeah, um, it's and it, and it's got it's it's out in a really cool edition. It's like a hardback. It looks great. It's it just the whole thing. I, I had such a great experience reading that. Um, that's him. That's amazing. Uh, Batman Year One, another. Uh, you know what? You know we know. It's it's pick it up. You you won't doubt it. Like Batman Year One, motherfuckers. Uh, depending on how you feel about that kind of like gruff, angry, weird Frank Miller energy, you might want to pick that up before Dark Knight Returns, mm. but that's up to you. Uh, but so Frank Frank is killing it. Bookending Batman's life, you know, in yeah. a wonderful way. Redefining uh, the character, showing he's got the biggest stick in comics, so that means it's time for Frankie to go to Hollywood. Yeah! Relax, don't do well when you want to be Well, he also goes rogue as a motherfucker. So mm. what happens is uh, he, um, I guess, motherfucker, by the way, word of the day for this podcast. <laughs> I keep saying it a lot. Uh, if you can get it down to one syllable, you win. So while he's kicking ass, um, motherfucker. Uh, while he's kicking ass, DC Comics is like, nah, we're DC Comics and we're mean and mad. Um, this is literally a quote I read. We're mean and mad and we're bad and, and big. Uh, we have to have a rating system. And then um, Frank Miller was like, uh, 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 and did, and you know, whatever. Frank, and we're not trying to censor. You didn't say the magic word. Yeah, you didn't say the magic word. Uh, uh, uh. Frank, we're not trying to censor you. We just want, we just want 30% less whores in your comics. And Alan Moore is like, oh, 30% less whores. Well, how about a dash of chaos magic sprinkles? <laughs> oh, my eyes. <laughs> That's just cayenne pepper. <laughs> Alan Moore, Frank Miller, some other uh, uh, writers, artists uh, got pissed off altogether about this and Frank Miller was just straight up like see you later son you know mm-hmm. and walked out the door and went off to bigger and better things aka sweet sweet delicious Hollywood so obviously people are banging down this guy's door he is the it kid and he gets to work on one of the most iconic franchises of the 1980s he gets to work on RoboCop 2 and 3 Woo! Well, we don't need to really talk about three that much, but RoboCop, Robocop 2, 2 fucking rules. 
I'm sorry. How many jetpacks are in RoboCop 2? Is it uh, none? Is it, oh, so I guess we gotta talk about RoboCop 3 then. <laughs> Robo yeah, but how much nuke does RoboCop 3 have? <laughs> huh? How many 80s uh, stereotypical 80s punks does it have? It's hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny. RoboCop 2 is so funny. It's I just watched a couple of months ago. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's great. Funnier. It's RoboCop 1 is better, but RoboCop 2 is funny. Wait, isn't the whole point? Isn't the plot of RoboCop 2 about why it's a bad idea to try and recreate RoboCop? <laughs> <laughs> like, isn't that literally the plot? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but, well, uh, yeah. what is it? Don't try to badly recreate RoboCop by using the soul of a dead evil drug dealer. Yeah. And also, children shouldn't be drug dealers, but sometimes they can be good at it. Yeah. Oh, is that, is, wait, is RoboCop 2 or 3 the one with the 12-year-old drug dealer? 2. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he's actually really good. Usually, I hate kids in movies. That's awesome. It was I mean, really good. How dare they ruin the film franchise that, that started with the first one where a, drug, uh, a gangster gets his fucking nuts shot off? <laughs> I mean, what are we what are we tainting here? You know, I thought I thought two was legitimately a funny movie. It was, and everybody here listening to it should watch. You know, should watch the second one first. Uh, you watch the first one first. <laughs> the second, yeah, you can watch them in order. It's like Godfather, though. I think you. I think it's just like Godfather. You could argue that maybe two is better than one. Some would could argue. Some could argue. It's very different from one, and then three sort of jumps the shark entirely. Oh, three's awful. Jetpack, little girl sidekick. It's the worst. But you if know, RoboCop is gonna have a kid in a movie. He'd better kill the kid. It's like a, <laughs> is it RoboCop three? Because I don't even know if I've seen RoboCop three. It's like a buddy movie with a little kid. Yeah, right? he's yeah. a hacker. Yeah. She's at like, oh, so many children in the 90s. She was a homeless hacker. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then there was the evil, there was an evil, again, a ninja. Ninja. Yeah, it was Frank a ninja Miller. robot that came over from Japan. Gotta be a ninja robot. Yeah. He said there was a lot of interference in the writing process. It wasn't ideal. After working on the two RoboCop movies, I really thought that uh, that was it for me in the business of film. He, uh, in multiple interviews, this is a quote that will stick with me, is uh, he, com he, he compares the act of screenwriting for a major motion picture as the act of working your balls off to uh, install a fire hydrant while watching all the dogs line up for a turn to piss on it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, man. I bet that is not too far off, especially a big film franchise like that. But uh, while he was uh, kind of after DC and Hollywood, yada, 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 he's like, I want to do things for me. Mm -hmm. All right. So he ends up teaming up with Dark Horse Comics. And uh, I, the way he describes it as he was terrified of returning to comics after his big break and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, kind of a sh shameful falling out with Hollywood. So he wanted to prove that he still got the chops. And he was scared that he didn't know how to draw uh, beautiful women and cool-looking cars. So whatever he was going to do, he insisted that those would be in the next book. <laughs> and that book was... Uh, Hard-boiled. Yeah. Was it? I was going to say Sin City, but oh, okay. it's say, you know, we're getting, it's all there. <laughs> yeah, same difference. Near dystopian future, um, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, his first, the, the first project he worked on was actually Hard Boiled, which okay. I do want to highlight because I thought it was pretty fascinating. Um, 
Uh, he wrote it from uh, 90 to 92 with the artist Jeff Darrow. Now, this is where Mobius comes into play. Mm -hmm. Jeff Darrow was a student at Hanna-Barbera Studios, and uh, he intro uh, was introduced to Miller by the French comic book writer-artist Mobius, who worked on Alien, Tron, Fifth Element, Abyss. This dude is the man. We could do a whole episode on Mobius. A whole episode on Mobius. And together, I, I thought this was interesting for anybody who wanted to go check it out. Darrow, Darrow or Darrow? Darrow. I say Darrow. Darrow and Mobius. Darrow and Mobius um, were, were, were end up working together on a portfolio of prints called Le Cité Fille or City of Fire. It's eight prints in a single kind of package together. Um, these really cool just spreads with a lot of detail, these big cityscapes and weird. It's just like an alien world. It kind of seems like an alien city. There were only 500 copies uh, made, so it's one of Mobius's rarest publications. So Mobius introduces Darrow to uh, Frank Miller, and they ended up working on this near-distant dystopian future uh, story about a tax collector named Nixon who finds out he's actually a robot, uh, a robot assassin, and sets out to get his revenge. I hate when that happens, I know, right? <laughs> it's super cool sounding. I read like the plot outline. It was definitely one of the major works that I wanted to go out and grab as soon as I'm done working on this episode. Um, it won an, uh, the Eisner Award that year for uh, writer artist, I think, in in 1990. Um, and he also worked on the another story called Give Me Liberty. Have you guys heard of this? Martha mm. Washington? Yes. I could not find like a copy in time for this episode, but looks it, awesome. Yeah. It's it, it's kind it kind of breaks the mold uh, that like, you know, that Frank Miller kind of is you know, he's known for just like gruff old white dudes in gruff cities punching drug dealers, but like this is the story, yeah, a dystopian future. Dystopian near future, all right? So get that in your heads, right? Picture that right now. Come with me down the rabbit hole. So you're saying it's the future, but bad? But soon-ish and very sad and mean. Uh, the U.S. is split into extremist factions. Uh, it's the protagonist, Martha Washington. You watch her rise from a housing project. Um, and go on to become a war hero and change the fate of the U.S. It looks fascinating. It's in four parts. Looks really cool. I definitely want to check it out. Um, the thing I heard that I, I was, I literally was desperate for information on this series so that I just called a, a friend of mine that's really into comics. And I was like, what's the deal with Martha Washington? He's like, well, the thing about Martha Washington is that Frank Miller has worked on it so sporadically that like the first few issues, you can tell he's still like young and liberal. And like by the end of like the most recent chapters, she's like blowing away terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, I think Martha Washington goes to war, I believe, is mm. some of the later works he's done with it. It's something that he has kind of come back to. Um, and, and so I definitely wanted to highlight those before we get into the big fucking meat on the table right now, mm. which would definitely be his work on Sin City. Hey, kids, you like tits and large swaths of black? I like one of those two things. <laughs> Do you like big men in big coats punching hookers? I like all of those four things. <laughs> Do you like watching a weird clown man getting his nuts ripped out of his body? I'm just going to go back to tits. <laughs> <We'll> just... <laughs> It's yeah, Sin City. What do we say, Jake? I mean, it's uh, first of all, I want to highlight he he wrote and illustrated mm -hmm. the whole thing, and um, a lot of people are probably familiar with it, especially at least with the film that came out. Films, films, plural that came out. 
um, almost all in black and white. If there's color in it, it's used to like highlight a character or something. Most most uh, uh, prolifically in uh, that yellow bastard, which uh, I made made fun of earlier. Uh, and uh, it was really brilliant stuff. I remember Sin City really blew me out of the water when I first read it. Just the use of positive and negative light to illustrate things. It's just, it's very brilliantly done in that sense, in an artistic sense, uh, using the use of negative space. It's it's proof that when, if you, if you put aside, you know, your, your other concerns and just make something that you want to see, it will probably resonate with a lot of people. Yes. If you kind of put the sensors and the, and the suits aside and you're just like, what do I like? What, what's a story that's deep in me that I want out there? Even if it doesn't look like anything else, even if it's, you know, a tone and like a subject matter that has long been kind of set aside, it, it works. If, if you believe in it, it works. You know, it, I think, too, it's the most direct and pure marriage of the manga noir sensibilities mm. right i think that i think you see that the most in the sin city series um originally ran in dark horse presents which was one of the first uh things that dark horse did okay dark horse was just uh one dude who opened up a comic book shop called pegasus books in 1980 huh. he used the money from that this guy mike richardson in milwaukee oregon he used the money from that to found Dark Horse Comics in 86. Dark Horse, of course, would go on to have Hellboy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Mass Effect, the comic book, all, all these licensed comic books, Aliens, Predator. Here's a good callback to another episode. Legend of Zelda, Hyrule Historia, <laughs> was uh, the English translation was produced through Dark Horse. There's a ton of manga. Akira, Berserk, which I'm reading right now and loving right oh. now. Lone Wolf and Cub, which Miller would end up drawing the covers mm-hmm. of the first 12 issues of Lone Wolf and Cub, his childhood fucking favorite manga. I think that is super cool, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but he would also go on, um, kind of unfortunately, to t- direct The Spirit, the film, mm. um, which I Should love, we- though, that mm. he got to eventually like have his hand in these things that made him who he was as a child. So, yeah, we're, so, yeah the 90s were basically pretty much full, like, Sin City was pretty much his main output. Yeah. And uh, it was like this... The hard goodbye, a dame to kill for, that yellow bastard. Uh, And then uh, the dark times happen. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) it happens to us all. Some would say it's happening to me actively as we speak. (laughs) Well, I like the Sin City movie. The Sin City City movie's great. I I saw it in the theater. I enjoyed it. Uh, In interviews, hearing uh, Frank Miller talk about making the Sin City movies, there is a sparkle in his eye that is like undeniable his experiences you know having his work uh so shat upon in robocop kind of get washed away because there's a room full of highly trained professionals that are all looking to him for guidance you know it's he is the word of god he is the director co-director co-director with robert rodriguez Mm -hmm. who he was so reluctant to get back into hollywood after his experience with the robocop stuff and Robert Rodriguez flew him out to, um, I believe they were making this Texas. in Austin, right? Um, so that's where R- Robert Rodriguez's camp is. He flew him out for uh, to shoot a proof of concept for um, the story, The Customer is Always Right, which is a short story in Sin City. And uh, Miller was so pleased with that experience. And that ended up actually be- 
being the the used as the opening scene of the film. But he just found from that little taste that that he could actually work with Robert Rodriguez. And I think Robert Rodriguez could kind of handle some of the things that he wouldn't be able to handle, but he got to explain entire backstories mm-hmm. to his actors, give them, you know, in-depth motivation for their scenes. And um and it was just a wonderful experience for him, especially the first one. Uh, oh, and we glossed over his other uh, his other big movie project, Three Hundred. Yes, Three Hundred yeah. was a uh, you know was a graphic novel, he, a hardcover graphic novel with beautiful colors, amazing compositions, and a very unlikely setting of ancient Sparta at the Battle of Thermopylae. Which he apparently, this is a story he had always wanted to tell because there's like an old black and white movie version that he watched when he was a kid. And like, yes. apparently, the when we think of it's the- It's a film called The 300 Spartans. The, uh, the pro, when we think of the Frank Miller protagonist, that like gruff, like, you know, uh, violent yet quiet, steady, like do what has to be done caricature, he's, it's always been King Leonidas in the back of his head. And so when he made 300, it was his it was his idea to like retell the story as grand as it is in his own imagination. And uh, Zack Snyder incredibly faithfully brought that book to the to the screen. It's incredible uh, to see. You know, it's it's a comic book in full motion. Uh, full disclosure: I have not seen 300. What? Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. I haven't either. I don't what? know. I read it. I, I actually you own- did. How could you read it? Not see. I didn't I, read, I read it, it when it was coming out. I read it in single <laughs> issues. I would just. It came out when I was in, when we were in high school. Yeah, yeah. I I, I haven't read it. I haven't seen it. It's crazy. Uh, I. It got a lot of criticism for not being historically accurate. Yeah, but, like, who cares? <laughs> fucking ab dudes fucking stab Persians. <laughs> um, British. British ab guys, you know, ancient Greeks, <laughs> uh, stab various brown people in jingly janglies. <laughs> Mysterious Eastern jingly janglies. There's big monsters in it and stuff, right? Yeah, there's monster people. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, of course not like you got back in the day. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say, like, despite all my New York liberalness, I'm not going to say that fucking cool, burly soldiers being like, no, democracy will not fall, is, like, not fucking adrenaline fuel. <laughs> yeah, I promise the listening audience I will mm-hmm. go and watch 300. Very divisive film, though, I found. Yeah. yeah. Like, people either love it or hate it. Uh, I mean, if you... I mean, I guess that's Zack Snyder is a very divisive. Yeah, director. Zack Snyder is a very divisive guy, and you know, I didn't start joining like a CrossFit gym afterwards, like half the people that watched it. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just as kind of just regular bro fuel. It's fine. The biggest thing I feel like we glossed over was in '94 when Miller returned to writing superhero comics. He did it with motherfucking Spawn issue number eleven, <laughs> and he also did the Batman Spawn crossover. Boy, bow, bow, bow. Tear it down. Tear it all bow, down. Bow, bow, bow. Yeah, let me give you a little bit of example of dialogue from Batman Spawn. Yeah. This, is, this might be Spawn Batman. Yeah. This is Spawn Batman and Batman Spawn. That's right. Is this before or after Batman finds a bunch of human heads inside of robot crabs? That was Miller's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this is Batman and Spawn fighting, and Spawn says, talking trash. You're talking trash. It won't help you. And then Batman replies, no discipline. 
stupid fighter, stupid punk. And that's most of the dialogue. Have you guys read? A lot of punk. Oh, yeah. A lot of punk talk. A lot of punk. It's like Shakespeare. I, you know, unlike any other comic book, too, uh, crossover, rather, uh, comic book, they fight it first, mm-hmm. and then they realize they have a common enemy, and they team up. Man, one of the freshest things <laughs> I've heard in crossover comics in a long time. There is a really cool panel of Spawn with a batarang just jammed in his face. <laughs> it's the last panel. <laughs> it's, really, it's the very last yeah, panel. Yeah, I yeah, remember cause, that. Cause he, yeah, because Batman's like, I'm getting out of here. See you later. And then he's just, like, <laughs> splacks him in the face. Bill, Bill, Bill. Splack is the gr- best verb. <laughs> oh, man. Kill. It usually means something much different. What? <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker, um, what? <laughs> but yeah, the film. I mean, I mean, the Sin City film. Uh, you know, what can I say? It was. It was. You know, I think that this was the most uh, telling thing about the movie itself because I felt this way when I went to see the film after reading a bunch of Sin City. Um, was it? Uh, Robert Rodriguez said he wasn't trying to make an adaptation. He was trying to make a translation, like a direct. I mean, it was storyboard to film. It was the first time I. I saw that in a movie where it was literally the exact storyboard of the of the movie was clearly the comic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the and also at the time it was one of the only just a hundred percent digital live action films. Oh, yeah. Like almost all of it was green screen. Um, very and like the the three sets, which was like the the strip club or whatever. These are like handmade sets in in studio. They used like a, a crazy high def digital camera combined with green screen, which was it was the first time you kind of saw that. And it was filmed in actually it was filmed in color and then uh, uh, converted to black and white, which was a lot of kind of why you get this very specific look that that movie has. I just remember Frodo Baggins being fucking creepy as shit. Yeah, dude. Well, I, yeah, I, I had read all of these stories before I'd seen uh, Sin City in the theater, probably like in the same summer. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and um, I just remember just feeling like it was like, Right out, like it was a hundred percent what I had read in the comic book. Marcus, what are you laughing about? I was looking on uh, on Google when you type in Spawn Batman, like you know how there's like the auto fills. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the auto fills is just badass. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude! I bet. Fr- oh man, Miller and McFarlane fucking hammering. Like who was on drums? Who was on guitar? You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't write and draw it. They probably just made fu- music. They, they probably just. Just punched each other and the yeah. blood splatters forms the pencils. Created the page. Ah, a hundred, a hundred and ten percent adrenaline. All it is is just Batman talking about fighting Spawn, and then Spawn talking about fighting Batman while they fight with each other. All right, fine. We're gonna do an entire episode on Spawn versus Batman crossover. That, it's going to happen. Like, we will go page for page and analyze every single page. The Wizard and the Bruiser reading series yeah. proudly pres- Wizard and the Bruiser book club. Yeah, <laughs> the Bruiser book club, yes. and nothing of value, just raw trash. Yeah, just just Spawn Batman, and then you. Can read Batman Spawn, War Devil. <laughs> um, so you were talking about the dark times. Now, are you talking about? I mean, the next uh, Sim City: A Dame to Kill for was was uh, I never saw it. I never saw. I hear. I hear it wasn't mm-hmm. as good, but I hear Eva Green kills it as like the oh, okay. er fucking Miller betraying Broad. Nice. Um, but there's 
he comes back for Dark Knight Strikes Again. Yeah, I thought that might be where you were heading with this. Um, I, I never read it. I just heard it was not good. So uh, it was. Looking back on it now, I respect all the weird risks it took. Like uh, Lynn Var- Varney or Varley, I can't. I'm so bad at this. Lynn, his his color, his longtime partner in colors. Uh, w- switched to all. Oh, dig- Varley. Varley switched to all digital, and unfortunately, instead of like opening up these new added like avenues, it's just really sloppy, bad Photoshop, like coloring jobs. Um, the the it's. The art takes this weird turn where it's all like very blocky and simplified. Uh, there's a whole scene where like Wonder Woman and Superman bang so hard that like they kill half the Earth's population through tidal waves and volcanoes. Um, He's getting older. There's- also, he was in Hell's Kitchen. He moved there in 01. <laughs> Perfect timing. Moved to back to New York in 2001. Mm. Um, you know, so yeah, he was kind of in a weird place, I think. Uh, during the writing of that, uh, um, he, uh, there's also All Star Batman and Superman, which was kind of it was supposed to be DC's big strike back against Marvel, who were killing it on the Ultimate line, which we could do a whole fucking episode on the Ultimate Marvel line. Um, oh sure. The uh, and so it was this dream team of a Batman book with Frank Miller writing and Jim Lee drawing, but this is like all the bad like. Do you know about, like, the I'm the goddamn Batman meme? No. Oh, my God. These are the comics where, like, Batman is literally a crazy person. It's just there's no logic to anything. The plot goes into all these weird directions. Characters are unrecognizable. And Batman is just a grinning psychopath. Yeah. Well, he's in, I think it's issue two, uh, Batman uh, rescues Robin from the circus. And it's supposed to be like more of it, like kind of a, yeah, year one type thing. But like back at the beginning, he's like, and Frank Moe's like, if Batman was real, then he'd be a bit of a psychopath. He'd be a bit unhinged before mm-hmm. he finally, you know, got his bearings. And so uh, he's driving away Robin in the Batmobile. Robin just saw his family die. Robin just saw his family die. And Robin said, who the hell are you anyway, giving out orders like this? And Batman, without even looking at him, screams, what? Are you dense? Are you retarded or something? <laughs> who the hell do you think I am? I'm the goddamn Batman. <laughs> Uh, Edgy. Yeah, yeah, super, super edgy. Yeah, this was like 2005, I think. Well, that was when he, his marriage fell apart. (laughs) He got divorced from Lynn Barley in 2005, so I'm going to maybe throw it out there that he was a bit unhinged himself while he was writing that. Yeah, 2005, and I will admit, I was working at a comic book store at that time, and as soon as that comic came out, are you retarded on the goddamn Batman was just like something that we would say. It's like, hey, it's like, hey man, you want some Sonic for lunch? Are you retarded? I'm the goddamn Batman. Of course I want some Sonic for lunch. I just remember there was like a few, the issues took forever to come out. Like oh, you would, yeah. they would like spring on you like months apart. Uh, there was like a weird thing where Batman like tricked the Green Lantern into entering an apartment he furnished entirely in yellow shit. <laughs> like the chairs were yellow. He was wearing a yellow costume. He was drinking lemonade. <laughs> Just fuck with Green. It was basically Psycho Batman gleefully fucks with the DC universe. I want to like analyze it and like find the connections to his divorce. Mm. Like I'm sure they're in there. You know, it's all in there. Mm-hmm. Like underneath everything. <laughs> Uh, there was also, uh, I'm sure there was other stuff, but uh, Holy Terror. Do you know about Holy no, Terror? not at all. So, again, 2001, not a great time. Not a great time. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of comic publishers put out a, um, 
a like uh, compilations of how their individual writers and artists respond to the tragedy. If you ever track those down, they're actually incredible like works of comic art and like a very raw snapshot of that exact moment in time. And uh, for DC's uh, edition, Frank Miller just put out this like really fucking like dark, inky, uh, like small story that was like, I'm sick of gods. I'm sick of fucking everything. Like it was like real. It was raw as shit. And so his publisher was like, what do you want to do? Like, and Frank Miller was like, what about, what if we did one of those old time war propaganda comics? You know, like when we fought the Nazis in the 40s and Captain America would punch Hitler. What if it was Batman fighting Al Qaeda? <laughs> and uh, I forgot the name of the exact public, uh, the exact editor that greenlit this, but you were like, fuck yeah, let's do it. And it took him a while to get it done. And then that publisher left DC. And DC was like, hey, uh, we, we saw some of your preliminary artwork, and it looks like Batman's shooting a bunch of weird Arab people in the head. <laughs> and by Arab people, I mean hook-nosed mummies, you <laughs> What the fuck? Yeah, and everyone had kind of calmed down a little bit yeah. by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it's like, okay, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be being the, like super Islamophobic constantly. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, is that Now, is that separate from Dark Knight 3, The Master Race? That's No, that was uh, that was even more recently. Now, he wrote that with Brian Azzarello, who wrote 100 Bullets. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, I have to tell you the, the, the last thing about Holy please, Terror. Let's, please uh, go back to Holy Terror. I love it. So... The uh, publisher that first greenlit the thing was like, hey, tell you what, I'm working for a new comics publisher. Take what you did, finish the story, come over and we'll publish it. And so what they did was they literally erased the ears off of Batman (laughs) in the artwork. So it's just Batman with no emblem or ears. But it's definitely Batman, and he's hanging out with definitely Catwoman, but the ears have been removed. <laughs> she even, like, the Catwoman character even is like, nine lives, good thing I have few left. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's fucking racist as shit. Oh, my God. So he becomes, like like all, all white men do, he became a, a creepy, semi-racist old man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. But that's the weird thing, is he's so soft-spoken and, and deliberate and intelligent and passionate in interviews. That, like the image in my head, like before we did this episode, if you asked me, like, hey, you know, what does Frank Miller sound like? I'd be like, the fuzz city horse, horse break, fist bash against a nose like an old Coke bottle exploding. <laughs> but you know, he's like, oh, no, it's fine. I, you know, the Will Eisner was a brilliant man. And, you know, the power of comics is the creative freedom it imbues each individual person. And I feel like that's a beautiful blessing on the world. So, not Alan Moore. No, he's he's not Alan Moore. He's not Spooky Yuki. He definitely is like he has some weird health issue that he's never been public with. But like he's sixty years old and he looks older than Stanley. He has kind of a fun relationship with Alan Moore too. At one point, he he mentions a uh, 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 kind of an enjoy what he said was a wonderful two day fight they had after <laughs> the killing joke was put out because because uh, Miller had such a problem with what he did with the with what Moore did with the killing joke. They they just like went back and forth. For like two days apparently about I would it. I would kill Love for those to letters. Hear that. I know, right? Like like hear a transcript of that dear, or, or read dear, a transcript. Dear Mr. Miller. No wait, I forgot I lost the the Alan Moore voice. It's like Crikey! I like no. me likes chaos magic, no? He's not a slop man. Oh me loves me chaos magic. And me <laughs> sings a song about chimney sweepings. Ah, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um 
he yeah the spirit he independently directed yes. that was a weird piece of trash i intend to be extremely faithful to the heart and soul of the material but it won't be nostalgic it will be much scarier than people expect uh it did not uh do very well i don't believe i so. saw it in the theaters it was a train wreck it looks this it ha- uses the same tech as sin city and 300 and stuff it has that same kind of like look and feel right right but like it's he, he's trying to make it in this world of like 40 superheroes but it's also like Samuel L. Jack, like everyone's like hamming it up, but not doing a good job. I, yeah, it, I'm gonna have to rewatch it. I just remember being in the I theater, being like, "Probably don't." Oh, oh no, no, no. Why yeah. can't you be the good kind of bad? I mean, at the, yeah, the you know, the first sentence of the plot synopsis is the. the in a cat-filled mausoleum in Central City. <laughs> yeah, I just good on him though for getting to 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 do that project because that was obviously a labor of love based mm. on his childhood uh, and enjoyment of of the spirit and, and major influence from that. So I always love to hear that somebody later in life got to kind of work on a project like that, even though it was a dumpster fire. Uh, Eastman. Oh, one thing I don't think we like uh, we I barely mentioned it, but I want to get that out there. That weird trivia: uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, Eastman and Laird's original comic is a very direct homage to Frank Miller's run in Daredevil to the point where their origin is literally the same chemical accident where, you know, young Matt Murdock pushed a blind man out of the way of a speeding isotope truck. Uh. And the same uh, element that gave Matt Murdock his powers drained into the sewer and gave the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles their powers. So or cool. their ability, their legs, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's the power of the Ninja Their bodies. Their yeah. bodies. Uh, and, and the tone, that initial tone of like ninjas and rooftops was a direct homage to Frank Miller to the point where, you know, uh, Daredevil's uh, sensei, if you've watched the show, is a man named Stick. Yes. And the Ninja Turtles leader is Splinter. Splinter. There you go. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, well, guys, I think that's, and ladies, I think that's our uh, Frank Miller episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to all the trench coats and hookers. Yeah. <laughs> um, I promise I'll go see 300. And uh, yeah, please, please uh, go and, and rate and review us on iTunes. We you stress this every episode because it, 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 it's it been working. It helps. such a huge difference. Like Tinkerbell, we are kept alive by the claps of those reviews. Absolutely. So if you haven't done so already, Please, please do that. Uh, please just go on right now and just and just uh, rate and review us. It helps us out 10, 10 20 fold. And uh, you can catch me, Holdlanders Ho, on Twitch. Uh, Jake? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And uh, you can uh, go on dorkly.com and like and share our stuff there because it's, uh, it's a nice website for nice people. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, all right. Catch you next week. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.